and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Uh, Rosie and I just wanted to thank you all so much for listening. We're so incredibly grateful. So please do let us know what you think, what you'd like more of, and any debut authors you'd like to hear from. Also, it would be really lovely if you could subscribe and give us a review so we can spread the word and give these marvellous debut authors the exposure they deserve. That's what we're going to be doing to you guys. A satirical dystopian fantasy novel that's been likened to the work of Terry Pratchett. And as well as being a debut novelist, Amy is a lecturer in creative writing at Falmouth University. Please give it up for Amy. <laughs> oh, wow. Thank you very much. That's an awesome welcome. Um, lovely to be here this evening. Um, I'm going to talk for a couple of minutes about my journey into writing. Um, which actually I was talking with my brother about it just now and it started about 15 years ago when I started and abandoned an online creative writing course. So I made it, bro. (laughs) (laughs) He he actually footed the bill for it as well. So so anyway, um, after my undergrad, I decided that I wanted to do an MA in something that would be more interesting than my undergrad, which was quite, which was social sciences, and I didn't really like it. So I did creative writing. I got an MA in creative writing, decided that I really liked it, and so I went on to do a PhD. Um, I wrote this novel, The Biggerers. Thank you. Um, And I wrote it about five or even six years ago. And I really thought nothing would happen to it. It, uh, I got lots of feedback from different uh, editors um, saying that it was quite strange. It was good, but it was quite strange. So I was like, oh, well, fair enough. And then um, I met uh, an editor called Jenny Parrott from One World, and she rather liked it. And so a deal was struck, and, uh, and here we are today. So I was obviously chuffed to bits about that. But all that to say, you know, never give up. Even if a book lies in a drawer for five years or so, then, you know, you can always go somewhere with it, definitely, absolutely. So The Biggerers is about um, big people who keep little people as pets. Um, yeah. Weird, hey? Yeah, it sounds weird. It's such a simple idea, but when you hear it, you're like, oh, yeah, weird. Yeah, okay. And I got the idea from my, my pet cat, actually. Um, he used to come and see me in the evenings, as pet cats do, for little tickles behind his ears. And I suddenly realised that I was the only source of pleasure that he had. Yet he couldn't communicate with me. He couldn't ask for these tickles. If I had decided I wasn't in the mood for it, he just wouldn't get it. And that seemed rather unfair. If he could say, oh, Amy, please, could you tickle me? then, you know, we'd be in a fair and just society. So I thought, ooh, but what if he wasn't a cat? What if he was a little human and he still couldn't speak? How would he get his pleasure then? How would he get anything then? And how fair would that be? So obviously this is a book about power dynamics um, and the imbalance that that can create. Um, And obviously part of that is to do with language. If you can't speak, to what extent are you an equal, I suppose? Anyway, I'm going to shut up and read. Okay. Um, I'm going to read you the first part. Bonbon was the first to sit up and look out of the basket. Something pulled at her arm. Get off, Jinx. Would you come back down for a while, please, Bonbon? No, Jinx, it's time to get up. 
Oh, please, Bonbon. Jinx's voice wobbled and her teeth made a noise like stones being dropped on the tiles on stone day. Bonbon swung one leg over the edge of the basket and got out to look at the bowls. Both bowls were full. She took three mouthfuls from Jinx's bowl, then began to eat from her own. They spent the morning gathering dropped thread. Then at lunch, they waited for her to come home and refill the bowls. She didn't come. They crawled through the vacuum hatch to go outside. The courtyard was astroturf that grew into grey concrete walls that grew into grey bars that Jinx and Bonbon couldn't see the top of anywhere in the garden except for one spot. Only one of them could stand there at a time and she had to press herself against the far right of the sliding doors where she could hold on to the sticky out bit while standing on the very ends of her toes. Jinx went straight over to this spot. Bonbon collected dropped thread from the astroturf. Chips arrived. Are you going to get it tonight then? Yup, we are, said Bonbon. Well, said Jinx, only if they're in the mood. When have they not been in the mood, Jinx? Occasionally, Bonbon, they're not in the mood. What does that stupid word mean, Jinx? What does it mean? Chips, do you know what it means? No, said Chips. It means sometimes, said Jinx. Bonbon slit her eyes at Jinx before turning her back to her so that she was only looking at Chips. Jinx turned and walked back to the vacuum hatch. Yes, we are going to get it tonight, Chips. What's it like, Bonbon? Is it good? Chips, I just wish you could try it. Bonbon spent the rest of the afternoon putting the thread around their basket. Jinx, you're not doing it right. Why can't you do it right? Jinx went and, sat and went and sat in the toilet box until she heard the front door open. Then she crawled to the edge and stuck her head out. Bonbon was running across the tiles towards the kitchen door. She stopped at the open side and stood, fluttering her eyelashes. Jinx shuffled along after, kicking at the edges of the tiles. Bonbon was so nasty sometimes. Why did she have to be so nasty? And she never said sorry. She stood next to Bonbon, looked up and fluttered her eyelashes. The she one was making noises at them. She bent down and stroked Bonbon on the head, then Jinx, and it was then that they could almost hear what she was saying. Little chilly billies, and her head went back up in the air. She filled their bowls, then stayed in the kitchen making the smells that she made until he came home. Then the two of them sat and ate the smells. Then they went into the big room. They were in the mood. <laughs> Bonbon went and got it, then Jinx. Then they went back to the basket. <laughs> Thank you. And um, a, and a world that might get materialised. Mm -hmm. You never know. You never know. Yeah. Um, so it's been dubbed domestic dystopia, which is kind of a, a first for the riffraff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I wonder whether, like, you know, you had when you were setting out to write, whether you had any kind of genre rules in mind, or whether you were just kind of like, got this story, mm -hmm. just going to tell the story that I, you know, what was were you thinking? Where does this sit in the market? Or yeah. Well, I aimed to write uh, to write a magic realist novel. 
Um, but the trouble is with magic realism is it, you know, it involves a lot of realism um, and then splashes of magic. And so by making everyone tiny, I kind of, well, wiped out that idea completely. So um, I realised that I was writing a dystopian novel, I suppose, literary dystopia. Um, but I only really realised that when my editor told me this is a domestic dystopian novel and I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense once I kind of realised what that was. So, yeah. yeah, originally magic realism, but okay. then I started to get interested in dystopia, into dystopia. Okay, mm. cool. Does anybody have any questions? I have more, but anyone? Don't be shy. Holly. Oh. I was just wondering how you found the process of writing the story world where there are small people. Like, you described their surroundings yeah. very well. And so, as the writer, you must have had to spend some time discussing with yourself an authentic small world mm. for people and how your experience was making that up like did you do anything to create it for yourself or did you like what was the process like to create that story world for you i, I took a pill and i shrunk myself <laughs> <laughs> that's really what i was hoping you would say <laughs> no no well actually they don't really have their own story well they do but um, it's, the world is not shrunk. They just they live yeah, in a, a full human yeah. world. Yeah. But to see it from there. Yeah. Well, I mean, their intelligence is suppressed, and that's how they can kind of, you know, maintain this existence happily, I yes. suppose. So I thought if I kind of write the story through the point of view of a child, yeah. so defamiliarizing the the normal, the banal then, um, yeah, that would be quite interesting. So that's how I, I created a normal world, but try to, yeah, try to imagine how a child would see it. That naivety. Yeah, that naivety, yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, so why do you think it is that humour and dystopias go so well together? And, um, like, how do you balance making a statement about the state of the nation while also kind of taking the piss out of it? Oh. Um, <laughs> I didn't realise I was doing no. that. I didn't even realise it was funny. So yeah, that would be, it was not really intentional to be oh, honest wow. with you. Yeah, just naturally yeah. hilarious. Yeah, just naturally <laughs> hilarious. <Yeah>. Natural <laughs> hilarity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I thought it was better. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. okay, great. Well, I'll ask you next to the other woman. So, um, as we mentioned, you teach uh, teach creative writing at Falmouth University. Yeah. Just educating the next the next round of the riffraff people. And <laughs> um, so, how easy did you find it to apply your own teachings to your writing process? And there's kind of the idea out there that those teach creative writing kind of have it all figured out. And um, is that the case? Well, I think, you know, a lot of people say, um, do as I say, not as I do. Um, and I think that's probably the same case, certainly for me. And also, when you first write, well, when you first write something, it's so precious. And, well, you have to develop some confidence surrounding it, I suppose, before you can say, okay, this is good enough for me to teach you my methods. So um, this has been my first year at Falmouth University, and I've been using lots of theory, but from other people. Um, uh, so applying what they preach to my own work, it's not, it's not something that I really do yet. Well, I didn't do with the Bigorous, because this was, this was a learning curve, all of it. It was part of a PhD. But certainly the, the other things that I'm writing, I've started writing now. I, yeah, I use these rules. Have you made this an essential text? Because <laughs> <laughs> you should. That, that would be super cheeky. So no, we haven't. I've been hinting at colleagues there. Well, thank you very much. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, so next up we have Emily Thomas, who is a Brixton local. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Emily has turned her.
talents and experience as an editor to, to writing. And her debut novel, Mud, has received rave reviews, with Rowan Pellin calling it impeccable, which is excellent, and Clover Stroud saying it was a brilliant gem of a book. Please give it up for Emily Thomas. Um, okay, so my book is ostensibly a children's book, um, but it's what's called crossover, which means that... <laughs> did, you, did any of you hear that? <laughs> it's a children's book, um, but it's got quite a big crossover appeal, um, partly because it's set in the early 80s, um, and it's about a teenager. It's narrated by a 13-year-old teenager who... Um, whose mother has died, her father has remarried, and he has spent all his money, and he's come home and told her and her four, her three siblings, and um, he's told her and her three siblings that they have to sell the house, and they're going to live on a boat. Um, it's quite a big boat, but it's a boat, so she's going to, she's just about to be 13. Uh, for her, it's the end of her world. Um, she longs for a best friend. She thinks that will never happen now that she lives on this boat, which is kind of smelly wooden boat that leaks. Um, also, he has a new wife, and that new wife has three children. And this has all happened very quickly after her mother has died. Um, and this mud is a diary form and it's her narrating her journey from uh, innocent 13-year-old um, to nearly 15-year-old. And in, in that time period, an awful lot happens. Her father falls apart, um, her, her family is in chaos, and she, in the middle of all this, is trying to find herself, uh, trying to find who she, actually who she is and where she belongs. Um, and she finds what she'd been longing for, which is a, a best friend. Um, it's quite dark, this book, because her father has uh, become, is an alcoholic. Um, and uh, he is born to a certain generation where he didn't, you know, men don't talk about mental health. He never got old, over his grief. Um, he doesn't talk to his children. He just tries to pre present this facade of I've got it all covered everything's fine um, but through her eyes we see that everything's not fine uh, and her narrative is quite um, naive but there's a subtext which is where perhaps the older readership comes in um, there's lots of um, uh, wry observations that she makes about her father that um, are quite sad and poignant, um, but what stops it be from being too much of a grim fest and a sort of, you know, I'm living with uh, an alcoholic, is the humour. So, um, and that was deliberate. Another thing to say about <laughs> this book <laughs> is that um, the 13-year-old narrator is actually me because that happened. It happened. This all happened to me when I was 13, and my dad did exactly the same thing, and. Uh, I'm a long way away from 13 now, but, um, and for a long time I didn't want to think about that period. So, Mud really is my redemptive, cathartic novel about a, an adolescence that was quite extraordinary, um, pretty unpleasant sometimes, 
black, blackly comic at other times, um, left its mark, um, but lots of good things, as they often do, come out of really dark situations. Um, and I'm going to read an extract. Um, I'm just quickly going to say before I read this that um, her father has stopped um, noticing his children. And she's the youngest in her family, and she is no good. She can't concentrate at school. She can't seem to focus, which the adult readers will um, detect as trauma. But she doesn't know why. Um, but her father doesn't bother to ask her how she's getting on at school. Um, and although she's quite glad about that in one way, because she hates school, she feels the neglect on some level. So this extract. Um, is when she and her brother and her father are all uh, sitting on the boat. Um, and it's when his uh, alcoholism is kind of at its peak. For the first time in ages last night, Dad asked me about school. How are you getting on there, he said. Must be your O-level soon. They're not till I'm 16, I said, pleased that he had asked, but dismayed that he couldn't remember how old I am. Oh, are they? I can't keep up with these modern exams, he said quite jovially. He'd just come in with one of his bottles and, uns and unscrewed it, pouring some clear liquid into a glass. Sam, who was doing some homework of his own, glanced up and gave Dad a look, but he didn't say anything. And what do you want to be, Dad went on, after he'd taken a swig of his drink. What job would you like? I thought allowing the many versions of my future to flip through my brain. Air hostess, professional cat carer, cafe owner, or someone who reads all the time like a, a librarian. The last one would be perfect, because it wouldn't actually be a job, just a brilliant thing to do and get paid for. Dunno, I said. I think you'd make a marvelous actress, Dad declared. He looked over at Sam, waving his glass around. Don't you think, Sammy? She'd be a wonderful comedy actress, all that flouncing around in the amateur dramatics. He laughed to himself. Sam, who not so long ago would have found this funny and agreed with Dad, just looked at him as though he was insane. I really don't want to be an actress, I snapped, as I'm far too shy, though I am quite good at voices. I think she should work with books, said Sam, deadly serious. You know, for a publisher's, or maybe working in a library. Oh my God, Sam. I was thinking that too. Sam half smiled. Well, better crack on and start doing your homework more often then, he said. Yes, yes, I said, thinking I already did the homework for that particular job. She's a big reader. You do need a degree for jobs like that, Sam said seriously. I knew that, but I couldn't see why. Why, when you're perfectly able to read, do you have to do an exam in it? But really, all a librarian does is stamp dates in the backs of books and put them away in alphabetical order, I said. That's something I could do right now. I think there's a bit more to it than that. Sam rolled his eyes. Oh, for goodness sake, said Dad. He was topping up his drink. All the people I've ever worked with have absurd levels of qualifications, and many of them are imbeciles. It's obvious that Lydia has a very high IQ. She's terribly clever. He turned to me. I wouldn't worry too much about you. Sam sighed loudly. Do you really think that? I asked Dad quietly. Dad stared at me which is when I noticed his eyes were slightly bloodshot. Was that? About me being clever, I said. Yes, my love, he said. Very clever indeed. He, looked, he leaned forward, looking slightly over the top of my head. 
Can you do me a favour and see if there's any wine left in the rack in the galley for dinner? Sam, who had heard this, shut his foot with a snap and looked at me as though he wanted to burst into tears. saying it's based upon your own experiences. Yeah. Did you keep diaries back then and extract um, from I did actually keep diaries, well, I did keep diaries, actually, it was full of really, uh, like, frivolous things about hair dye. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I did, what I did do was write down, um, from quite an early age, how I felt about things. So I'd write and feel really sad for them, I'd say things that happened with them. And I can remember doing that. Um, it does, well actually her voice doesn't change that much, um, well, or rather it does change but very subtly, so it, it doesn't look, think, seem like she's a completely different person. What happens is she grows up bit by bit, so at the start of the book she's quite, I wouldn't say she's spoiled, but she is quite a sheltered 13 year old and um, her narrative at the beginning reflects that and then as things get darker, um, she gets a little darker. Um, and I didn't know how that would work, actually, but it, it, it sort of, I think the reader kind of grows up with her, if that makes sense. started writing it I didn't really know what it was going to be um, and then I realized actually that it was, it was slightly too emotionally difficult for me to write it down verbatim apart from the fact that verbatim has very mundane bits in between all the drama um, and in order to write a book I needed to keep the dramatic peaks consistent which they weren't um, and fictionalizing it helped me um, even though they were it helped me protect the real people involved um, because my siblings, my parents, but my dad has been dead quite a long time and actually if he was still alive I don't know if I'd have written it. Um, but, I, but there are a lot of real people um, versions of them in this book that I wanted to protect. Um, and slightly because actually the real story, um, even though there were of course black comedy moments in it, um, the real story was quite painful, and life isn't happy ever after. Um, and I knew that in a book, this book, there had to be some sort of, there had to be glimmers and gleams 
and darkness. So I had to weave in sort of redemptive bits where things weren't, things turned out slightly better in the book than they did in real life, as it were. Um, and fictionalizing it detached me slightly so that I, for, for example, when it came to the whole, I'd finished the book, and talking about the book, I think I would have gone slightly mad had it been completely my life in that mm. book. So I think it was a good idea. But it's, having said that, most of, the, most of the things in the book actually happened. Okay, next up we have Holly Ringland. Um, and Holly's own story is almost as credible as the book. Incre incredible? Not credible. Incredible as the book. <laughs> supposed to be a writer, can't even speak. Um, and so I'll start again. Holly's own story is almost as incredible as the book she has created. Yay! Yay! <laughs> um, she travelled with her family for two years around North America in a camper van, which is awesome, and worked in a remote indigenous community in the Australian desert, and has taught creative writing to women in prison. Um, her debut, The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, is a dreamy read, and fortunately, Holly is here to tell us all <laughs> more about it. Please welcome Holly Ringland. Um, thank you all so much for being here. This is really special. I'm obviously not uh, from the UK. I'm Australian. Abby! <laughs> I know somebody in the crowd! <laughs> um, and this is my second time speaking about my first novel in the UK where I've lived for nine years. So this is super special. Thanks for coming. Um, oh, you guys. Um, I moved to England in 2009. Uh, to do my MA in creative writing in Manchester. Um, underneath that was also that I needed to uproot and restart my life. Uh, up until about 10 years ago, most of my life was lived with male-perpetrated violence. And as anybody in this room will know from any degree of trauma, despite wanting to be a writer since I was three years old, Trauma will silence our voices and squash our dreams and we're so busy just trying to get by and be happy and smile that sitting down to take on self-doubt and self-worth to write is not easy. So despite moving here in 2009 to finally give my writing dreams a crack, in 2014 I still hadn't written the novel that I'd moved here to write. And I had tried many times, many attempts. It wasn't until I had a bereavement in my immediate family in 2014 that finally that grief that we all know, the madness of it, drove me to finally get over the fear and just try to go into my heart where we keep the sore place and our stories and write from there to see what would happen if I did what the American novelist Tom Spanbauer calls dangerous writing. And he uses this phrase, as some of you, as some, as some of you, I wrote a book, you guys, <laughs> as some of you might know, dangerous writing is the act of using fiction as a lie to tell the truth truer. So lots of what Helen was talking Ooh, about. Like and when I read that, Everything that I had been writing, I'd been writing aside of the small place, as a sore place, and in spite of it, and above it and below it, but never from it. So I went into 
my office in 2014 bereaved and something that gave structure to my grief was picking up a book called The Artist's Way, which some of you might be familiar with. It's a 12-week program written by Julia Cameron about how to unblock ourselves and harness that Jungian childlike energy of imagining and writing and doing it for the joy and the beautiful thing that it is. And in doing that, she said, go and do an artist date. Treat yourself to a new pen. So <coughs> I went and bought a fountain pen because, you know, fountain pen and a moleskin if I'm going to be a writer. Um, and uh, the office that I chose to write in in Manchester, um, as Amy said, I lived in the Australian desert for four years. And as some of you might know, it's red dirt, blue sky and green shrubbery. The outlook of my office in Manchester looks out onto the red bricks of the city and when the light hits the red brick a certain way, it looks just like the colour of the sandstone iron ore at home. So I went in there in 2014, I uncapped the proverbial real fountain pen and I sat down and took a really deep breath and I just thought, what would happen right now if I just shut that bastard voice in my head up and try. What will happen if I try? Took a really deep breath, sat with my pen, and I watched my hand write the first sentence of this novel as if I knew it by heart. In the weatherboard house at the end of the lane, nine-year-old Alice Hart sat at her desk by the window and dreamed of ways to set her father on fire. Alice had arrived. If I could not write for myself, I was obligated to this nine-year-old who was fully formed and had come. And my first novel, The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, it spans 20 years of her life. It's set between the ocean and sugarcane fields, a rural Australian native flower farm where her grandmother, who she has never known existed, teaches her Australian native flowers as a way to say the things that are too hard to speak. Then she moves into the desert where she learns that if we ever want the freedom that we crave in our own lives, we have to somehow find the courage to possess the most powerful story any of us will ever know, which is our own. So I'm going to read you a brief section from the time when Alice is with her grandmother who she's never met, who she's going to live with after tragedy irrevocably changes her nine-year-old world. Late afternoon sunlight poured into the cab. Alice started. She'd fallen asleep without realising. Dried tears cracked in the corners of her eyes and there was a kink in her neck. She straightened up and stretched. Harry licked her hand, hopefully. She let him. She was too tired to push his snout away again. No longer on the highway, they were bouncing noisily along a rough dirt track. A pink bruise had formed on her knee where it had knocked against the door handle as the truck jostled over bumps and dusty pockmarks. Alice craved salty sea air. June had her window down, one tanned elbow resting on the open sill. Her graying curls moved gently in the wind. Alice studied her profile. June didn't look anything like her father, but she felt so familiar. When she tucked a curl behind her ear, the silver bracelets jangled on her wrists. From each one, a small charm dangled with a pressed yellow petal inside. She glanced at Alice. 
who was too slow at acting asleep. You're awake. Through the blur of her pretend sleep eyelashes, Alice saw June smile and shake the bracelets on her wrist. Do you like them? I made these myself. All the flowers, they come from my farm. Alice turned her head away to look out the window. Each flower is a secret language. When I wear a combination of flowers together, it's like I'm writing my own secret code that no one else can understand unless they know my language. Today I thought I'd wear just one flower. A muscle twitched in Alice's cheek. June changed down gears, the bracelets chiming in response. Do you want to know what they mean? I'll tell you the secret. I will tell you, because you're lovely faces. Um, the flower was the butterfly bush. Wrote a book. <laughs> butterfly bush flower, which is an Australian native, and in June's language, it means second chances. I know, no one's under any obligation. I, too many years of my life, I've been in the audience at this stage as the emerging writer, and I'm like, <laughs> and then someone like will be like, yes, and I'm like, do you like dogs? They're good. Yes. <laughs> that is a great question, Sarah. Thank you. I wrote the whole first draft in Manchester, and I think I don't know that this book would exist if I wrote it at home in Australia. The distance and the difference of the landscape and the environment allowed me to go back into the Pacific Ocean and the bushland and the gum trees and the kookaburras and everything that I grew up with and everything that I've lived with and everything that is tainted with traumatic memory that even to remember can feel really unsafe. So I would go to my desk and I would work on the first draft and then when I'd had enough, I could close my Word document and the gum blossoms and the, the river and the salt and the humid uh, weather and I could put on my North Face jacket and go outside in northern Gothic architecture and feel really present. And I think that, that that's what made it so possible, is that I was in control of the, the memories and the, the uh, like evoking the place and the story and going into the sore place and then leaving it behind because I could go out onto the moors or go out into the city that's so different to anywhere that I've ever lived at home. Actually, I had a question about location because mm. the novel shifts location. As you said, it's almost done in three acts and it shifts yes. location three times and it introduces um, a host of new characters each mm. time. How do you go about shifting action and introducing new characters yet keeping the book as a whole cohesive and one? That is a really great question. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> and the first thing that comes to mind is that I think that 
with a big with a big story because it spans 20 years and with big themes that are in the novel i think the only way to tell a big story like that is to keep it at the individual level so that you're going into the life of your main character but also recognizing that your secondary characters has have just as much valid interior life and life outside but it's just how much airtime they get so treating them not as secondary characters, but as really vivid, you know, entirely entitled to their own inner lives and outer lives themselves. And then I think the thread through, through this novel, the main one and, and the obvious one to me is the language of Australian native flowers, which Alice carries with her from when she's nine right through to 29. Um, and that motif that carries through kind of illuminates the idea that I don't know about you guys, but when I was in my 20s, I thought that I could just get in my truck or get on a plane and leave grief behind and arrive somewhere and be like, yeah, I'm a new person and nothing hurts and everything is great. Um, and that's just, if anybody has had that experience, please let me know how that worked out. I tried to go to Thailand and then there were just these buckets of alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> Best laid plans. Best laid plans, yeah. Um, any more questions before I see? Oh, yes. I'm curious about how you um, progress the child from nine. So how do you age her? How do you deal with such formative years? Yeah. Progressing through the teens and through the twenties, mm. it's all so changeable. How mm. do you do that with her voice? I don't know that it was sort of fully conscious beyond vividly remembering what it was like to be nine and then what it was like to be 16 to 18 and then what it was like to be 26 and I hung out with people that age but I also listened to a lot of music that I listened to at that age and like going back to 1996 god why did I do that ah <laughs> oh, and I and I it's funny how not very far away it is. Like I'm 38 now and going back to being 16, it's 22 years ago. But like you put on Wonderwall, man. And I am, I am back at high school parties, drinking Jim Beam out of the bottle. And like, it came way too easily. It came way too easily. And I think also nine, nine is such a formulative age like when I was nine was when we were living in the camper van in the states and it was just this time of sort of wild adventure when you're not really perceived at an adult level but you're not a, you're not a child fully anymore like I was aware of what was going on in my family I was aware of the violence around me and happening to me but then also you have that childlike oh so today we smile and we're happy and also taking on that weight of how can I fix this? Because nine is old enough, at least in my experience, to, to be aware of a problem, but you use childlike logic to fix it. So the fire that Alice is dreaming of setting her dad on is not literal. She's reading books about the myth of the phoenix. So if she sets him on fire, then he can become something else and then everybody will be happy. So it's that, and then 26, 
26 was just, I mean, 26 was just when I left to come to Manchester. So it was just a hop, skip and a, it's just right there, you guys. And so it, it just was the willingness to sit in it and right from the sore place, reflecting but not reliving it to write fiction. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I hope you had a nice break, got yourself a drink, went to the loo, got to chat to our lovely authors. Um, how good were our first three authors? Amy, Emily and Molly. What, what an opener. I don't, well, we're going to try and top it in the second half. Um, our next author for the night is Jenny Zhang. Uh, Jenny needs no introduction, but we're going to give her one anyway. Um, Jenny is a poet and essayist, and her debut short story collection, Sour Heart, was the book chosen to launch Lena Dunham's publishing imprint, Lenny. It's the Lenny imprint. Yes. yes, the Lenny imprint. I know myself. Um, it's been named a book of the year by The New Yorker, The Guardian, Esquire, BuzzFeed. She doesn't need any more words. Please put your hands together for Jenny Zhang. Okay, cool. Thanks so much for having me. This is so cool. Um, I actually have um, like not the best self-esteem right now with writing or the best motivation, and um, I'm very inspired by these uh, the last three authors. Thanks so much. Um, it's nice to be in the audience, also. Um, I don't know if I have a really great origin story uh, to tell you. Or maybe I just, um, it's like I want to, I didn't like have enough time to make up like a, a, like a cool lie of how this came about. So, I mean, I just wrote, I just wrote. <laughs> like, I, I don't really remember what happened. Um, I just wrote a lot. Um, and then there were years where I didn't write. Um, I don't know what I was doing then either. I can't really parse out what was stopping me. It's a mixture of myself and whatever I determined were like, you know, my enemies in the world. Um, those were all the things that were stopping me. But, um, but I'll just say that uh, this, uh, this is a story collection of seven stories. It's mostly about um, young girls growing up in New York City in the 90s. Um, they're all Chinese-American immigrants. Um, and um, it's like, adults looking back on their lives um, and in this period of their lives um, when they're children and growing up um, and starting to form their own identities. Um, and I'll just read from one story. It's the second story. It's called The Empty, The Empty, The Empty. And the only thing you really need to know about it is that the narrator is in fourth grade and um, she like, just got her first boyfriend, so she's like very excited. Um, but also, like, disgusted, <laughs> you know, like, she's, like, horrified and, like, wants him to be dead so that she, like, doesn't have to actually date him. And, like, she goes to, <laughs> she goes to this school that has been identified as a high-risk school, so they're doing um, pre-sex sex education <laughs> for these fourth graders who are pretty young. That's, like, nine years old. 
The day that it was announced, boys and girls would be separated for an hour each week to learn about SEX. We lost our freaking minds. Minhee gathered all the girls around at recess and spun her finger at us. Who here has done it? <laughs> Francine jokingly wiggled her hand in the air, and I smacked it back down. Stop lying, I said to Francine, my best friend. She smiled at me the same way she smiled when I cursed wrong on the first day of school, which bugged me. I was actually looking forward to learning something, but all we ended up doing on the first day was sit around in a circle looking at diagrams of girls' bodies at various stages of development, from no boobs to tiny nubs to big, fat, round globes, and then somehow got into a long conversation about what sort of touch was appropriate and what was inappropriate. The whole thing was foreign to me. I mean, all touch was wonderful, and the small amount I had experienced in my life was too precious to split off into categories of wanted and unwanted. And what if we wanted more touch? I felt like asking, but I never did. Typically, fourth grade was too young for even pre-sex sex education, but a woman with spiky blonde tips and big pins all over her blazer informed us at a mandatory assembly that we had been targeted as a high-risk school and measures had to be taken to ensure for the future. She spoke to us spitefully, as if we were awful, terrible children, and she used the words at risk several times without going into detail. What were we at risk for? After I told my mother about the assembly, she started to fret that there were too few white kids in my school. Am I at risk, I asked her. It's a sign, she said, and then trailed off to make a phone call to someone who must have needed her to finish her thoughts more than I did. Over half the kids in her school were black or Spanish, although every time I called them that at home, my brother Eddie, who was five years older than me, would correct me. It's not Spanish, it's Hispanic. And that's not even an adequate term, he said, because they comprise a lot of different cultures from different countries. Well, I said, you're his stupid. <laughs> Forget it, Eddie said. There's no point in explaining anything to you. But later I went to his room and knocked on his door very softly and cracked it at crack and stuck my head in and asked, so what's Francine then, if her dad's Hispanic and her mom's black? You could just say she's mixed. Oh, okay, I said, is that high risk? Get out, he said. <laughs> and for once I didn't make a whole show bang on his door after he had locked it behind me. Still, I didn't know what the risk was. Was it just obesity and junk food? Nearly everyone in my grade, except me and this really mousy, quiet girl, Mandy, who I kept forgetting even existed, had more tits and more ass than my own mother. It's the hormones, my father said, that they inject into the chips and the Cheetos. My God, my mother exclaimed, it's in the Cheetos? <laughs> Sometimes when school let out, men walked past and hooted at groups of us standing around outside. Nice ass, mommy, a construction worker once shouted at Francine when her back was turned to him. And I pointed at him and said, you talking to me? And he said, no, you're fun with the nice ass. And I said to Francine, how rude can some people get? But Francine just shrugged. They're all like that, she said. Yeah, I said. 
pretending to know. That's wonderful. I'm going to open the questions to the floor rather than hog it, as I normally do. So that's what Rosie does, and I feel like I should do it. Anyone? Wonderful. <laughs> Did I find it? Sorry, I didn't hear the last part. So like, it is really like, know what it was going to be about when you started writing. Did you find it hard to figure out what it was actually about when you finished it? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think when you start writing something without knowing what it's going to be about, you know, there's like that excitement in the beginning you know you're like really stoked on it and then you kind of like abandon it because you're not really sure where it's going but there's also um like the thing where you know exactly where it's going and you bore yourself because it's like i know how this is going to end why would i keep writing you know <laughs> like, um there's other things to do so it, it's this balance of like how can you know something and still, but still be excited to write about it? And I think every book is different. And I think for some people, their first book is like a book that they've been writing their whole lives because it's like um, it's in you, and it's it's it it's um, you know as Holly was saying, like it's it's already inside of you, and you kind of need to exercise it or something like that so when I say I didn't really know what I was doing it's true I didn't know what I was doing but I also knew what I was doing because I'd already lived my life and and there were things in my life that uh, left me with questions that I'd been trying to answer my whole life and I think writing a book is not one way of answering those questions but it's a way of of at least doing something about the obsessive questioning so you can move on to new questions and more interesting questions. Wow. <laughs> yeah, oh my God. I was like, oh, soak that in, Amy. <laughs> Thank God we're recording this. Right, dear Jane. Uh, I've got a bit of a naughty question. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, what is the definition of naughty? <laughs> I love, I love that that's, I love that that's naughty. Uh, um, I really want to import that definition to American English. Um, uh, yes, I wrote a lot of these stories um, because I, I did go, I went, I did go to an MFA program when I was 23, so not too long after college or university, whatever you call it here. Um, so I was in like I was in workshops when I was in my undergraduate program and I was also in workshops when I was in my graduate program. So it was a lot of um, workshops. Um, and I also had a writing group that I started on my own in between those two programs. So I was kind of always in that environment, which um, is both it's it can be very it can be very um, motivating to, to know that there's someone reading your work. Um, it gives you a little sense of just a little more importance than just writing on your own sometimes. And maybe that's silly and maybe, you know, it's very crude to need that. But that was really important to me as a young writer who did not have a high sense of self-importance. 
but I did care about like my friends' opinions and I cared about my, you know, students' opinions. I, I respected them and it was important for me to write well for them. So I did have that. And I think the struggle were the stories that, um, not the stories that I had to like edit so much that I almost had to rewrite them. Those stories, I rewrote them or edited them outside of the workshop experience. And I think that was also really great and instructive. And it's really it was really great because I wrote for no one. Like I wrote for myself just because I felt like those stories weren't good enough. And I wrote them with no intention of showing them to anyone. So I kind of had a little bit of both, if that makes sense. Any other questions? Oh, no, great. I can ask one. Brilliant. <laughs> I was like, didn't include these in the podcast because I was like, hopefully I'll get to ask them tonight. Um, so uh, aspiring writers tend to have like a real fixation on kind of establishing their voice. And um, even like you seen that seems to be something that you've nailed. And I just wondered if you had like if you could share your journey to finding your voice yeah. and um, if you could offer some tips for those hoping to do the same. Yeah. Um it's hard because voice is, it's, it's the heart and soul and personality of, like, your writing and your book. I mean, it's like people being like, I really want to have a great personality, you know? It's like, <laughs> you, and, but then also, like, you do have to work at having a great personality. Like, part of it is innate, and some people actually are just incredibly charismatic and whatever, but it's also true that you do have to work at it, and in that same way, you have to work at having a great voice by not just, you know, being born with like the gifts of a writer but by by working on it and I think one thing um is like the trick of like having a per like because it because people with big personalities can turn people off with their big personalities or they can be incredibly alluring so it's like how do you be alluring without turning people off but also how do you not be so like you know how do you not kind of shred your personality down to a you know a nub that is uh reasonable and acceptable by everyone like i think part of it is um accepting like not everyone will will like your voice and that's the first part of like being okay with rejection being okay with being misunderstood um being okay with like evoking a strong reaction in someone that may not be positive but also it's like for me getting being confident in my voice was like going back to I think writing that would probably be considered quote-unquote bad writing like very raw writing very um cringy like writing that was bloated with perhaps like you know adolescent feeling um <laughs> and um you know the kind of writing you do when you really don't think anyone will discover it where you're really like writing for the first time and you're kind of unaware of how you sound to other people um, I'm not saying like I, I, I stuck with that kind of writing, but I had to go back to that place where I was almost like a teen again and like forgetting that someone might care uh, like what I was writing and just writing for myself. Um, and if you can start from that place, then you can um, you can like you can be like an, you can be athletic about it, you know, like you can practice that that voice and find a way to make it mature but without losing all the like delightful roughness that makes it your voice. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Okay, any others? Um, no? Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much, Jenny. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Our next author tonight is Claire Askew. Um, she's a poet yeah. and an author. Jesus, have. Um, of the completely gripping All the Hidden Truths. Uh, which was eventually won by Hodder in a hotly contested auction. Claire has come all the way from Scotland, so she wins, basically. She only came from America. Oh, okay. Absolutely virtual, yeah. Oh, okay. You're, you're Sorry, please. Um, thank you so much to everyone who's travelled. <laughs> Sorry, it's not a competition. <laughs> well, it is. Um, I'm going to get my foot out of my mouth. Um, where, she, sorry. Claire has travelled from Scotland, where she is the current writer-in-residence at Edinburgh University. You're just too talented. Um, please hear it for Claire Astor. Yeah. Am I close enough to the microphone? I think oh, so. You might need to yeah. speak just project. Bit. Okay. Yeah. All right. I can project. I've been a teacher for many years, so you better all behave. Um, <laughs> So I'm going to bring things down a little bit because I am the token crime novelist for the evening. Um, and it's a kind of particularly horrible crime that is described in this book. Um, I won't say too much about my writing process because it was kind of a long and very hilly process. So you can maybe ask me about that in the questions instead. But it had such highs as uh, this book won the Lucy Cavendish Fiction Prize when it was in first draft form. Um, that was lovely. But then I ended up crying on my kitchen floor at one point, at several points. Um, I broke up with my first agent, um, but then it, it has survived and it's made it here. So, hey, thank you. Um, so the story is uh, that at the beginning of this book, there is a horrendous college shooting in a further education college. Um, a young man walks into the cafeteria of his further education college and shoots dead 13 of his female classmates. And then the rest of the book follows three women who have been very seriously affected by this event. Um, the mother of the gunman, Moira, the mother of one of the victims, Ishbel, and then the person you're going to hear from in this extract, uh, D.I. Helen Birch, who has just got her pips. She's just been promoted. It's her first day at her new station. And this case basically hits her desk. Um, and I'm going to read you the section where the dispatcher has just announced that there's been a call. Um, she's in her car, and the call comes in to say there's been a college shooting, and the dispatchers all think it's a hoax, basically. But she's not convinced, so. So she decides to go and check it out, basically. The morning traffic had already peaked, but Birch found herself held up in a queue behind a bin lorry. She set up a mental abacus of regret, snapping at the dispatchers, saying she'd go out to a crime scene that probably wasn't a crime scene. As she fretted, she kept one ear out for the radio, chattering away between static. What would she say to DCI McLeod? I just wanted to check it out. She'd be an hour late now, at least. Charlie Alpha, this is CA19 Park. Birch's senses sharpened. The voice belonged to a PC she'd worked with a while back. Nice girl, green when they'd known each other, but showing potential. 
I'm at the Tweed campus of Three Rivers College and I can confirm that shots have been fired. I repeat, shots have been fired, over. Without waiting for the dispatcher's reply, Birch flicked on her siren. She pushed the car's nose out into the road and punched up through the gears. The traffic peeled back like a pulled tarp, a sight she never tired of. On Park's channel, the dispatcher was faltering. What do I do? She heard Park asking. The girl's voice was spiky with fear. What do I do? PC Park, this is D.I. Birch, she said. CA38, I'm on my way to the scene, over. A strange calm settled on her. She felt as though the car were driving itself, speedo hitting 60 and rising, tangle of cars whipping by like a film playing out. Even the siren seemed distant, the sound coming to her as if through a fog. Mom. Birch coming onto the channel hadn't done much to settle Park. He went inside. He went inside and I heard shots over. Who went inside? Park didn't reply, but Birch could hear her speaking. Someone else was there then. That was good. Charlie Alpha, this is Birch. If you haven't already, you need to go to gold command. Repeat gold. Go to gold over. This is Charlie Alpha. His voice cracked. She imagined the panic there. They'd had to call it and they'd called it wrong. I'm sorry, Mom, the dispatcher was saying, but do you have the jurisdiction? Oh, now you're following the rule book? It was cruel, but she'd said it before she could stop herself. We have a confirmed shooting and unarmed officers at the scene. This is a strategic command incident. Go to gold, over. As she approached the campus, Birch realized hers was the only siren she could hear. Fucking dispatch. She'd hoped that by the time she arrived, an armed response unit would be there to wave her away. She'd heard the call go out. She flipped the siren off. If the gunman was still at large, she'd rather not become an obvious, noisy target. Or worse, have him freak out at the sound and shoot a bunch more people. She calmed the car back to a normal speed and eased into the campus car park. The sight that greeted her was an embarrassing government inquiry waiting to happen. Students were streaming out of every building, most from the main reception doors, trampling over one another like cattle, many of them screaming. Others were appearing from fire escapes and side doors, with no effort being made to corral them. Some were running for the safety of undergrowth at the campus perimeter, stupidly crossing open stretches of tarmac and grass where they could have been picked off by sniper fire. Worse, many more were milling around close to the buildings and staring open-mouthed at the upper floors. As Birch pushed open the door, the car filled with the shrill pinging of the college fire alarm, a sound seemingly designed to incite chaos. A few metres away, Park and two male uniformed officers were crouching in the shadow of a police panda car. Park was talking on the radio. Birch could hear her voice. There should be four of them, she thought. That was who Park had meant when she said someone had gone inside. Her partner. Christ, Birch hissed. She pushed her driver's door out to its widest point and stepped from the car in a crouch. The door wouldn't do much pr to protect her from a bullet, but being behind it felt better than nothing. PC Park. Birch had to shout over the fire alarm and the gen general student cacophony. The girl looked up, her face a mask of terror. It's D.I. Birch. How long since the last shot was fired? There was a pause. 
I don't know, ma'am, the girl yelled. I'm sorry, I think it might be a good 15 minutes now. Okay. The car was alive with chatter, voices on every channel, dispatch communicating with ambulances, fire, and those all-important guys with guns. Birch reached behind her. Charlie Alpha, this is Birch, she said. I'm at the scene. Where the hell is this armed response unit? A female dispatcher replied. It seemed all hands had been brought on deck, and in the midst of her panic, Birch felt glad the smarmy male voice was gone. This is Charlie Alpha. D.I. Birch, are you the commanding officer at the scene? Birch crouched behind the scant cover of her car door. A male student whipped past, heading for a patch of trees. Oh my God, the boy said, apparently to her. I think Liz is dead. I think she's dead. She watched him until he made it to a decent hiding place, then turned back to look at Park and the other two constables. One of the men had begun to cry, though he was trying to hide it. Jesus, Charlie Alpha, Birch said. I think I must be. say like Claire is responsible for keeping me awake all this week like this book is gripping like it's like no like amazing amazingly gripping and um I mean um sorry I'm just gonna ask a question don't worry about yours <laughs> um so like there's so many themes going on here you know like obviously violence against women institutionalized sexism toxic masculinity victim blaming like fuck me I mean the title could not be more like calling, like just calling the world on like all of its kind of, and I just wondered how much of um, how much of it, how much the themes, did the themes start the story or did the, how, what did you have first? Um, yeah, I was, I was interested to write something about male violence and the fact that it's always women who pick up the pieces in the wake of male violence. Um, but mainly the story started because I used to work in a further education college and I worked with a lot of very angry young men. Um, I was kind of assigned classes of mostly boys, mostly age 15 to 21, and they were doing classes like uh, sports science and engineering and that sort of thing. And, and they were usually guys who'd kind of dropped out of high school and were coming back to try and... It's all fine. It's all fine. Carry on. Um, yeah, so they were kind of coming back to try and get some qualifications after sort of fucking up a bit, some of them. Um, and they were absolutely lovely guys uh, when you got them on a sort of one-to-one -one basis. But they'd all had kind of difficult times in their life. And what I noticed about them was when you got them together in a, in a room, in an enclosed space, and there was even the slightest provocation, like violence was their go-to thing, mm. whether it was threatening each other or climbing over the tables to try and get to each other. Or, and I suddenly sort of realised how events like the one depicted in this book happen, that it's that sort of toxic masculinity is, is there and it's a tinderbox and it's just waiting for like the catalyst to, to spark something. So it was kind of inspired by them, even though they were all lovely. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, I could see that in spite of their loveliness, they were, they'd fallen victim to this kind of almost mob mentality of... Mm -hmm. Toxic masculinity, like yeah, so. yeah. See what kind of what a massive problem it is. Mm. Until that's sorted, the world will not be sorted. <laughs> that's my opinion, anyway. Yep. <laughs> Anyone have a question for Claire? Yes. Uh, I was wondering how much did the book uh, change our grasp 
Um, well, I always knew that, that what I just read was initially the first scene. That was always going to be the first scene, and then I did put a little bit more at the beginning. Um, and then I knew exactly what the last scene was going to be, and everything in between was kind of a very grey area. Um, and depressingly, several major shootings happened during the writing of this book that did yeah. change how I wrote it, in particular the Elliot Rogers shooting, because he was, I think that was about 2014, and he was the first of these kind of incels, as they call themselves, these men who want to murder women because they refuse to have sex with them, basically. Um, and so that brought kind of a new slant to the book without spoiling too much. Um, that's kind of in there. And also, I think, please procedure-wise, I was kind of lucky because... I didn't deliberately make it Birch's first day of a new job, but I found that that was really helpful because there were a lot of things that she didn't know. You know, she's gone from being a sergeant to being an inspector and suddenly she's working at a much higher level. And so, and also this is a, a case the like of which she'd never seen before or no one in her force has ever seen before. So a lot of the time people would ask her questions and she was able to quite reasonably go, I have no idea, which was really useful for me um, that the police were all quite clueless and and are quite freaked all the way through this, as they would be. Um, so I was able to kind of wing it a little bit, which, you know, I'm, that wasn't deliberate, but I'm pleased, if that makes yeah. sense. <laughs> did you go to, like, the, did you ask the police for advice on, because like, you, you have got a lot of reports in there, and, um, and like, all the lingo, and like, all the kind of, like, you know, the different reports she writes, mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff, and so did you, did you try and find some factual accuracy by speaking to someone? Or? Yeah, I mean, I was really lucky in that I had a, a real-life D.I. Birch, um, a lady called Emma Hack, who's a retired female detective inspector, um, read over it for me a couple of times, and she was able to tell me really interesting stuff, like, initially she said, Birch is, like, two together, she's two with it. Um, like, inspectors, you don't have all the, all the stuff, like the flat jacket and the, the baton and everything, you don't have all that on you all the time, so... She's like, Birch should probably a few times in the book realise that like she's left her baton in the car or left her handcuffs in the car um, or in her handbag and usually like at the time when she really, really needs them. So she kind of, she was like, you need to make Birch a bit more of a, just a woman who's trying to do a really hard job in a man's world as well. That's, that's a thing that she, she brought to me. So yeah, I was really lucky to have like a, a tame female police officer yeah. who worked with me on it. So. Hi, you need to read this book. It is amazing. Like, thank you for writing it. And um, yeah, and please buy it. And yeah, brilliant. Give us, let's get it up then. Yeah. So we've come to the last act of the evening. So Rachel Heng's debut Suicide Club has been featured in Stylist, Metro and New Scientist. And it's been translated into eight languages. And Rachel herself is equally accomplished being an MFA candidate and James A. Michener Fellow. You make these so wordy, mate. <laughs> and a James A. Michener Fellow at the Michener Center for Writers in Austin, Texas. Excellent. And Suicide Club has had a script from page one and we can't wait to hear more about it. Please welcome Rachel Heng. This is terrifying. Um, Hi. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I'm going to start, I'll just tell you a bit about, like, how I came to write this, write this book, I guess, wrote this book. Um, 
Yeah, so um, I, I, didn't I, I came to writing very late. Um, I feel a bit like a fraud when I say this because I feel like every other writer you talk to says, oh, I started writing when I was eight years old and I always wanted to be a writer. And I, I'm from Singapore and in Singapore you don't, you, know, you don't want to be a writer. Like no one wants to be a writer. You're basically told from a young age that you know, you're like, oh, I like reading. They're like, go be a lawyer. Or like, you're like, oh, I told my mom, I like art. And she was like, you should be an architect. So you know, it's kind of, it's this very soft pragmatic outlook on life and I came from not you know not a well-off family so it was all the more so that you know it's like oh you go get a job earn money and like support your family so that was how I started um so for many years I was like yeah I love books um and I'm just gonna keep reading them and that's cool and then I got a, a scholarship from the Singapore government and they paid for my university education in the US um and then there I majored in comparative literature and fell in love utterly with books again and I was like oh my god I want to do an English PhD and I really love this you know but I have to go work for the government because like they paid for my my university education as one does in Singapore um so then I was I, I kind of went into this corporate job for about six years um and while I was in that job I, I got really depressed in the beginning because it was quite an adjustment, like going from a liberal arts university and like being able to, you know, read like Russian literature and like just, yeah, like surrealist French, I don't know, just like cool stuff. Um, going to like learning how to use Excel and, <laughs> and like interact, and I was in finance, so I was interacting with like a lot of sort of, um, yeah, financy people, if like, you know what that means. Um, yeah, so that was like, it was a kind of, yeah, big change in my life and um, it was actually my partner who, you know, he had been telling me for years that I should be a writer because he just, he said, you know, he didn't know anyone who loved books as much. And he was like, you should write fiction. And for years I've been saying like, that's completely insane. Like, why would I write fiction? Um, but then like five years in and sort of like three years into my depressing job, um, he finally managed to break me down. And I was like, fine, I'll try to write fiction. Um, and then I started writing, uh, I did NaNoWriMo in 2013. So I don't you guys... No, it's like National Novel Writing Month, where people yeah. try and write 50,000 words in a month. Um, and so I tried, I was like, oh yeah, no problem. I've read books all my life. Surely I can write a book. Um, <laughs> started trying to write the book and it was un, you know, undoubtedly terrible. Um, really basic things like just, you know, I didn't realize that when characters move from like one room to another, you don't have to dictate that every step. You know, you're like, yeah, he take, his left foot moves forward and then his right foot moves forward. And then he looks at the wall and he sees a spot. And, you know, it was just, it was really bad. So I wrote this really terrible rambling sort of 40,000 word document um, about a world where everything was priced and traded. Um, and it was about this like hyper commoditized sort of like financialized universe. And I really liked the concept, but like the writing was really, really, really bad. And like, I just had no idea how fiction worked. I was like, oh, do you have to describe every single character's like every feature and like every move? And I was like, and stuff was just going really slowly because of that. You know, I take like, it was like, I've written like 5,000 words and really the people had like, you know, exchanged two words or something. So it wasn't good. Um, and so I scrapped that. I've never looked at it again, thankfully. Um, and then I moved on to short stories and I was like, oh, maybe if I, you know, I'm going to make mistakes, it'd be less painful to kind of make mistakes in a, you know, 5,000 word story instead of a 50,000 word story. <laughs> um, so I started writing short fiction and I was doing that for kind of two or three years. Um, I started in like 2014 and I was submitting to literary journals in the US mainly um, and getting a ton of rejection. I think I've accumulated about 300 rejections to date. So don't give up, you <laughs> know, keep, and, and I've had about six or seven stories published, so those are the stats, um, and yeah, and it was, it was, it was tough, I like, um, I got really discouraged a lot, and eventually I um, decided that I wanted to try a novel again, so I signed up to Faber Academy's writing a novel class, because that worked with my day job, because you can kind of go to classes at night, um, and it's like on Wednesday nights, and then you meet over weekends and stuff like that, so it works well for people with jobs. 
Um, and I started writing Suicide Club on that course. Um, and strangely enough, I guess, yeah, it actually has quite a lot to do with that first failed NaNoWriMo novel. So that's a really nice thing to think about that, you know, nothing you write is ever wasted and it all comes back and almost you have to, you know, you almost have to write that like really crappy version of it in order to like get to the hopefully good version. Um, so I, I started writing Suicide Club on my clause and kind of, you know, got 30,000 words in and then decided again that it was crap and like I should stop. Um, so then I gave up. Um, but one nice thing that Faber re does that, you know, if anyone's interested in Faber, this I think is like highly valuable. They um, publish an excerpt of your work in an anthology that then goes out to like agents and editors in London. Um, and it's pretty well respected, I guess. Um, so after my thing went out, I got approached by a bunch of agents and editors and they were like, oh, we want to see the manuscript. But I don't have a manuscript. Um, and the editors were like, oh, do you have an agent? And can you get them to send me your manuscript? I have neither an agent nor a manuscript. So <laughs> I'll go away and do that. Um, so I went away. I, you know, kind of hunkered down and I was doing this sort of, because my day job was quite intense. So I do like the 6 a.m. sort of thing where you get up, you do one hour. And I was working on 500 words a day. Um, and kind of every weekend I take four or five hours on Saturdays and Sundays and try and get 2,000 words done. So that way I was writing 5,000 words a week and that's how I wrote this book. So I was doing that. <laughs> um, thank you. Yeah. Um, and so then I, I got done with it, um, miraculously found my agent and then she sold it and that's where, that got us where we are today. Um, so that was my long and winding journey. And okay, so I'll tell you a bit about the book, I guess. Um, so Suicide Club is a literary dystopian novel. It's set in a world where life expectancies average 300 years and humanity is on the cusp of achieving immortality. And it's become this kind of all-consuming, really regulated, metric-driven um, drive for immortality and perfection. Um, but it's also a deeply unequal society. So not everyone has access to that and it's dependent on your genetics and how you behave and all of that. So just a dystopian version of what we're living in right now. Yeah. <laughs> and the story follows two female characters, Lee and Anya, and kind of their relationship with their aging parents and how they confront the mortality of both their parents, but also their own. Um, so I'll read from, I'm gonna read from Anya's section. because It gives a bit of a flavor of the world. Anya drew the woolen shawl across her thin shoulders tightly, sinking her chin in to breathe the fading scent of her mother. French lavender and the sea, all mixed up in one sharp whiff. Time was measured in the beating of her mother's mechanical heart. Thud, thud, thud. Space, in the number of steps taken to cross the room to retrieve the dried meals that arrived at regular intervals. Her mother's heart, rupture-proof, was now visible through a transparent film that had once been her skin, wrapped around a cage of bones. Anya could predict with split-second accuracy the rising and falling of each atrium, each ventricle. Each beat was exactly the same as the last. She watched it fill and squeeze, valves open and close, the ink-colored smart blood flowing thick and steady. Thud, thud, thud. Like the footsteps of someone pacing back and forth along the corridor of a big, empty house. The heart would be the last thing to fail. It had the longest working life and had been the newest, most cutting-edge technology. The skin had been the first. Anya had watched as it mottled and shrank away from the bones, great stains of tea brown spreading. Diamond skin, they called it, self-repairing and extra tough, to a point until her mother reached the end of her predicted enhanced lifespan and the clinic doors of spotless glass slammed shut forever. So Anya waited, alone with her in this dark room that smelled of stale water with nowhere to go. 
When her mother first took to bed, it was not so bad, because at least they could still talk. Back then, she could pretend that things were normal, even as her mother's muscles atrophied under the embroidered quilt, and her lungs slowly collapsed into themselves. They passed their time in idle conversation, talking about anything and everything, music, Sweden, Anya's father. Sometimes, Anya would play the violin for her, the strings pressing cold and cruel into her stiff fingers. She was out of practice, and it showed badly, but her mother no longer pointed out her mistakes. She didn't seem to hear the flat notes or stray beats, only smiled quietly, eyes on the ceiling, hands clasped over her hollow stomach. Anya longed for harsh words, for her mother to point out where she was going wrong and to call her lazy, complacent, to suck the air in through her teeth sharply and stamp her feet, to rap Anya hard on her knuckles like she used to. So she started playing badly on purpose, notes slipping and sliding, rhythm askew, watching in quiet desperation for the slightest twitch of displeasure on her mother's face. But it never came. All that remained was that blankness. Anya packed her violin away in its dark velvet case, the shiny metal clasps making gunshot clicks as they snapped shut. When Anya was a girl, a proper girl with ropey limbs and scattered acne, her mother used to take her swimming in the Baltic Sea. They would rise at dawn when the clouds were still asleep and the air was damp with fog. Wrapped in thick bathrobes, they'd cycle the shrub-lined path in the dim light, anticipating each bump and turn before it came. The cloistered morning seemed to go on forever, as if in a dream. But then suddenly, just as their sandaled feet started to go numb in the wind, the path would open up, and there it would be, lapping, metallic, the open sea. They stripped quickly, leaving their bathrobes in a pile, tripping lightly over rough sand and spiky little plants until they reached the edge of the surf. It was better to do it quickly, so they always plunged straight in, pushing through the suffocating chill that pressed from all sides until the sandy bottom dropped away and there was nothing left to do but swim. Her mother's limbs shone like ivory in the pink morning light, fearlessly sluicing through the cold. They did this every morning of her life, but then they came to New York and there was nowhere to swim. The day her mother said her last words, they had been talking about their beach. How the sand would rub their feet raw, the steely water blending into the sky. How every time the sharp cold, more heat than cold, never failed to take their bodies by surprise. Her mother wondering if their neighbor, Mr. Anderson, was still watering their plants as he had promised, waiting for the day when they would return to their little white house by the sea. Anya reminding her that Mr. Anderson was long gone, 50 years ago at least, before they even introduced life extension in Sweden. They had embraced it by now, of course, but were still a long way behind America. It was in the middle of this reminiscing that her mother's voice box quit, the muscles clenching around shapeless sounds until they gave up forever. At first, Anya kept talking, filling in with what she imagined her mother would say. It helped that her eyes were still alert, still met her own with a burning life. But eventually, they dimmed. Then her skin started to fade, losing its color and opacity. It grew harder and harder to keep up the one-sided conversation. Now Anya sat silently in the hard wooden chair next to her mother's bed, listening to the pumping of her mechanical heart. She told herself that her mother was long gone, her spirit extinguished like a flame in an airless room. She told herself that she was no longer there, that the body which remained was an imposter, a shell, a prison. 
But sometimes, she saw her mother's translucent eyelids twitch, and she wondered. And always, always, there was the relentless thud, thud, thud of the alien heart, a sound that haunted Anya in her sleep, in her dreams. As hard as she tried, she couldn't shake the idea that her mother was still in there, trapped in the dark, unable to speak or see. Thank you. spot they didn't get away that easily and um, that was wonderful rachel thank you thank so you. much guys i'm going to open the floor up to you guys first oh yes Yeah, interesting. I think the dystopian aspects in my book are most similar to Singapore and the US. Um, and I wrote this when I was in the UK. So I think I think it was Holly who said, yeah, being away from Australia helped her write about those things. And for me, I think it's exactly the same. And even though the book's set in the US, a lot of the setup is kind of like, so this, you know, very metric driven society, narrow, kind of narrow definition of success, like government control, that's very Singaporean in many ways. And I only realized it much later. It wasn't something that I put in intentionally. Um, but I was in an interview with a Singaporean reporter and she's like, this is very familiar. And I was like, oh, <laughs> how insightful. <laughs> it was one of those kind of ther writing as therapy moments where you realize how much stuff you know, that's unconscious goes into it. Um, and I said it in the US because when I first moved to New York, I was, you know, really kind of taken by surprise at the, you know, the fact that this really wealthy country was so deeply unequal and, you know, the way the healthcare system is run, like in, in Singapore, you at least have kind of government subsidized healthcare, if not like the NHS that you have here. So when I found out about how health insurance worked and like all that kind of stuff, that was really sort of mind blowing to me. And yeah, that's in many ways why I said it there. I'm going to have to think of one. Oh, yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, it's, it's already happening. Sorry, I've just knocked over the mic. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. right. There we go. Party call. I'll, I'll stand okay. here. Yeah, I'll hold it like a there rock star. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's already it's already happening because, um, I mean, I don't know if people have read that New Yorker article about like Silicon Valley billionaires who are trying to live forever. And you're like, oh, cool. So they're the ones who are going to live forever. Great. <laughs> Um, so there's that and then there's also people who are trying to like cryogenically freeze themselves um, like there was a guy who like had his head cut off after he died and then he wanted to be frozen so that in the future he could be revived I don't know why you would want that but apparently some people do um, so yeah it's I mean our reality is dystopian in many ways and it's already happening just what we need there's more billionaires <laughs> um, any more questions oh yes Yeah, I think probably the same reason that like, I mean, yeah, everyone who writes is probably familiar with this. You just get addicted to it. Um, and like, I just loved it. So even when I was like, oh, this is terrible. No one's ever going to read it. Like writing gave me some sense of just, I don't know, like being alive and like feeling, you know, like I was connected to the world and in a way like 
there's this really beautiful writer, um, Corey Taylor, and she wrote um, this book called Dying a Memoir that was published by Tin House last year, and it's the best book. Like, I super recommend it. But it's essentially a, it's a cancer memoir, so not cherry, but it's so beautiful. And like the way she writes about like writing and like memory, and she has this amazing phrase, which was, I write because um, writing gives, shapes to my world, gives shape to my world, and in writing this now, I'm trying to give a shape to my death. Um, and it was just really beautiful, and I think that's why anyone writes, really. Right, well, I don't think I'm going to top that with my, with my question about some language. Rachel Heng, thank you so much. We can just, we can just be Elvis. Uh, I'd just like to say a massive thank you for your patience in terms of the cooking that's going on this evening. Like, I felt like you at one point said chips, and they put some chips in the deep fat fryer. Yeah. It was like, <laughs> felt like it was working, but thank you for your patience. So. The Riff Raff Podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rose Roberts. Come say hey at the-riffraff.com.